0: life MMA and the NBA I'm your host DJ San Marco here on a I want to say it's Thursday night normally record on Tuesday but for this man we're gonna change things up we're gonna adjust our schedule we're gonna do what we need to do so uh, as I said my name is DJ San Marco my co-host is uh, Nathan at await soul on UFO Twitter and we're very very happy tonight to welcome in the man himself. Party people, put your hands together for Exo Academian.
1: Yeah. Hey guys, happy to
2: be here. <laughs> Good to have you with us.
0: <laughs> yes, sir. Exo Academian. So, um, so, you know, I, I sort of led the dance on the last podcast, Exo. And in fact, uh, Nathan shushed me up because do you know what we were talking about right before you came on? What's that? We were talking about the, how do I say this, the, basically the movements of Tic Tac in the Fravor, um, the Fravor engagement with it, if you will, you could ascribe human sort of patterns to the way that it acted. And the person who brought that out is none other than Nathan but he's not going to let me start with that so I guess we're going to have to talk about it later <laughs> yeah that'll
2: be a future show, <laughs> future future show. <laughs>
0: All right, a future show but, but think about that one were those could you ascribe a human behavior pattern to what the way that uh, the, the specific things that that, that uh, craft did and I don't want to call it an aircraft but that craft
2: yeah definitely food for thought right
0: yeah so anyway Nathan take it away brother
2: Awesome. So yeah, we are so uh, glad and grateful to have with us Exo Academian, uh, who is the host of the Point of Convergence podcast. Uh, The Point of Convergence podcast is a unique show within the world of ufology. This is a show that started back, I think, in late uh, December of 2020. Uh, There are over 30 episodes uh, in this show. It's incredibly well researched, incredibly organized. Every little show is like a, a mini lecture. You're getting like a graduate class in some aspect of the phenomenon covering topics. Like recording the in progress of reality, uh, recording, uh, talking about experiencers, contact modalities such as CE5. You do book reviews, discussions, remote viewing, simulation hypotheses, a whole kind of gamut of topics. Uh, it's so, Recording
0: it, stopped. Sorry it's about
2: that. Ab- it's absolutely great to have you on with us and uh, and to chat with you today,
1: guys. I'm happy to be here.
2: Awesome. Well, as we talked with you in in advance of the show, uh, we talked about wanting to to go over religion and sort of the intersectionality of religion with aspects of the phenomenon. And I wanted to start out the show if you're willing to talk a little bit about this too. To, to share with us some of your own kind of journey, uh, not necessarily with the phenomena specifically, although I, I certainly want the listeners to hear that, uh, but your background with uh, religion or spirituality or religious studies. Can you speak a little bit of the, to, to that for us?
1: Yeah, sure. And uh, I'm happy to address that, actually, because I think it's a big piece in how I approach the UFO phenomenon and just how I f- approach life in general. It's one of those things that's so... Um, central to who i am that it, it it touches on everything uh for me um and i also would say that i i have felt this kind of like really um strange abstract and yet somehow semi-direct feeling of intervention in my life and uh kind of like a guided path but mm-hmm. always sort of just just behind the hills kind of thing you know like you just catch a hint of light above the hills in other words. I can never put my finger on it but i just sometimes look back at the level of synchronicity Mm -hmm. and it feels that way sometimes um but to give you a a brief background so i would say as a uh, a teenager i was interested in spirituality um then kind of went in a in a fairly conservative bent uh had some you know sort of crazy spiritual experiences and ended up uh becoming an evangelical christian um and Mm -hmm then actually pursued uh, even biblical studies and religious studies at the university level. Um, and then that kind of became more and more um, abstract in itself. Like, in other words, I would take the, the core of the experiences I would have, but I would move further and further away from these direct uh, dogmatic interpretations of the experiences I was having. Mm. And as I studied biblical and religious history and started studying some Eastern religions and whatnot, I began to see how there's this tendency. uh, I remember some of us used to talk about it. It goes like this, it's man myth monument. Mm. And the idea is that you have some sort of crazy experience that somebody has with something spiritual or phenomenological or whatever. And they gather a bunch of people around them because they've had this crazy experience and they're totally motivated by it. That creates a myth. And then eventually you get to a third stage where it becomes a monument, where at that point you dogmatize the entire thing. You start writing books about it. You try and categorize and lock into boxes how it's supposed to work so that it becomes safe and tame. Mm -hmm. And so I noticed that through the life of Jesus and then how the church kind of went from there, I looked at some of the differences between sort of Eastern Orthodoxy and how evangelicals would look at things and remarkable differences. You know, things like Eastern Orthodox Christians would actually pray for the conversion of Satan, mm. uh, which uh, an evangelical, would, it just would never occur to them because there's <laughs> this very much block-like thinking that God is always good, 100%. Satan is always evil, 100%. They're like these two, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum in in mm. life and reality, and that's just the way it is. Whereas Eastern Orthodox People who are also Christians saw it very, very differently. So I sort of stepped further and further out from a really dogmatic view and more towards trying to just grapple with the experience. And from there, uh, I went through a phase where I was, okay, how do I, without being dogmatic, how do I make sense of all of this? And I kind of went through a bit of a dark night of the soul mm-hmm. for a few years and then eventually found integral theory, which really helped me to see how I could tie in you know, things like science and and modern thinking and critical thinking with uh, a spiritual element as well. And integral theory and Kem Wilbur helped me to see how these different domains of truth are all true in their own ways. Mm-hmm. And that what we'd had before then was these different domains sort of claiming absolute territory, you know, like we, we, we alone have the, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the have <absolute>. the, <laughs> How, exactly, we have the only take on truth, and everybody else is just wrong. Yeah, so finally, I, I was able to see how all these things can work together in a really integrated way that was totally inspiring to me. Then I went through a phase where um, some of the people in, in integral circles are so focused on categorization and being able to name things and t- to a T that I felt like sometimes some of the spiritual, uh, like being on the cutting edge of the spiritual. Uh, reaction and experience was missing and so then i pursued some spiritual teachers and some eastern teachers who really uh seemed to me to get at the energetic core of what was really going on and and didn't get caught up in in language and mm. and therefore didn't try and make the spiritual experience one step removed from the actual experience mm. and the more i've even when i've come to the the phenomenon and i think about different states of consciousness and whatnot and how often people seem to have experiences in an alternate state of consciousness, we tend to again go, okay, if it was a dream, it's not real. It doesn't count as much, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. If it's in a hypnagogic state, or if they are using DMT or something, it doesn't count. You know, again, we have these prejudices about these different ways we experience reality. So for me, I've tried to step further and further away from that, have more of a raw sort of naked awareness, uh, -hmm. of experience and just let that guide me rather than beginning with dogma. So, um, and, and of course, just, would I would have say, to add to, let me just a, have one a, more piece. And sure. that is, of course, with biblical history, it's mm. fascinating to me that um, much of what was written and was experienced by people thousands of years ago might very well be experiences with the same phenomenon that we're all talking about and captivated by now. So that's been a big part of it for me as well. Yeah,
2: for sure. I mean, what, what a great story to share. Do, do you feel that there was at some point where... Uh, in your journey the dogma sort of failed it sounds like you're incredibly uh, sort of where you are now you're at this very place of like high plasticity um but in the right. past it, it was not the case at all like what was it kind of was a break moment for you that uh that shifted your your paradigm there
1: you know i don't think it was one thing i think that i i began to feel more and more cognitive dissonance over time where i would see how people around me would just be you know lockstep into this sort of dogmatic way of seeing reality and and of course human beings whether they're scientists you know buying the dogma of scientism or whether it's religious people buying their dogma it's it's just a human issue you know Mm -hmm. it's not really to do with religious people per se uh anyone who kind of adopts a worldview tends to make that absolute that's just the way we are we were we're built to sort of go through the world we we want to eliminate as much data as possible. So by beginning with a dogmatic perspective, whether it's again, uh, a rationalistic reductionistic view or religious view, it helps to make sense of the world. So you can get up in the morning and it's not so difficult. So we all do it. For me, what started happening was just one thing after another after another didn't quite fit for me anymore. I just had a hard time uh, seeing how this nice box view of how this is all supposed to work. It just, it didn't feel realistic to me. And so over time I felt more and more dissonance until eventually I just had to break away. Mm-hmm. And again, that's why I say that that dark night of a soul. And that's why I even feel for people who have experiences with a phenomenon and try and fit it within a traditional religious perspective because it just doesn't fit very well. Right. And, uh, and then it's a very scary kind of a lone feeling when you don't know what to do with it.
2: Mm-hmm. Definitely. And 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 what sort of got you from uh, that journey, and then the the uh, the interest in the phenomenon, being kind of an enthusiast of that, to then deciding, you know what, I I want to start pushing out content. You know, I really want to take this into a different medium, uh, and 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 explore this in a in a more public way. I mean, that must have been a pretty. Um, challenging journey to go through uh, that many of us have probably gone through. Who've thought about dipping our toes into the more public uh, discourse here.
1: No, that's a great question. And that's again, where I have that sneaking suspicion of leading, you know, because I don't really know. I mean, that, that's, that's the truth of, I mean, I can try and after the fact, give you a mm-hmm. justification or a rationale, but I kind of, at some point just changed course and have felt kind of driven towards this Almost like a compulsion, and I, 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 as as I'm sure many of us wonder, what makes me do this as obsessively as I do? Mm-hmm. I would have never known five years ago that I'd be doing this weekly podcast and talking to people about this and thinking about this and reading about this on a daily basis. You know, mm. every single day for years on end. So very strange, and, and and it's one of these subtle things that it's really hard to peg down when did it begin. Um, I mean, I, I was. I had an interest in the phenomenon going way back into the late nineties with, um, with Whitley Strieber mm. and his books really impacted me. And I've actually been rereading some of them recently. And it's interesting coming back to it now and having a much more you know sophisticated palette with which to address that material and to digest it. Because when I first read it, it was really compelling and I knew somehow it was touching something in me. I didn't know exactly what. Um, and then I sort of dropped it for a long period of time and went through this sort of, you know, zigzagging spiritual journey that somehow makes sense. Uh, I think in, if you look at it from the right perspective, it's a straight line, even though it doesn't seem that way sometimes. Um, and then, you know, uh, in the around 2015 kind of thing, picked it up again. And again, I don't remember exactly exactly. What it was but one thing after another and before i knew it i was completely in and uh, no turning back and it's been that way ever since and as far as starting the show i think that's a great question and i think what it comes down to is being on twitter and getting tired of only having 220 characters or whatever it is to express myself because this is such a sophisticated nuanced uh phenomenon you know right I remember John Alexander has said that it's easily as complicated as cancer. You know, mm-hmm. probably far more so. And we have thousands and thousands of people, and are and pouring billions of dollars into this every single day, year after year after year, decade after decade, trying to understand it. The phenomenon is easily as complex, and yet there's not nearly the resources, nor even the uh, admission that it exists by, you know, by <laughs> most of society. So for me, at some point, I realized, okay, I. Even in you know, thinking back to conversations with my wife, and over time you develop this shared vocabulary, and you develop a, um, a shared understanding of what you mean by certain events, right? And that allows you to build onto the next step of the conversation, and the next step. And I began to realize, you know, a podcast where I sort of weekly get to address this, and dive back in from different angles and different perspectives, and look at it, it as a, in a multi-dimensional kind of way, and tie in these other aspects, like you mentioned in the in the beginning with the size spectrum and stuff like that, because somehow it's all connected. And I'm convinced of that and fascinated by that. And I realized I really needed um, time to build some arguments and to explore this over a long period of time in a regular basis. And that's when the idea of a podcast made sense.
0: Yeah, and um, it's the most personal medium that we have beyond uh, face-to-face communication. uh, Electronically, it's the most personal medium I think we have. Uh, But I was going to ask you, so you talked about five years, and, and I'm into it now. I think, and Nathan's probably similar, that we're consuming this information and thinking about this on a daily basis. But you've been doing it for five years. So does this phenomenon and your study of it, does it represent a calling of sorts that you've found
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd I'd have to say, I would agree with that. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. Um, you know, it's, uh, there are other things I do in my life. You know, I have a job like everybody else and which I enjoy, but, uh, in terms of what really, you know, occupies my attention, what fascinates me, what it ignites my curiosity, it's this, Mm -hmm. and uh, I definitely feel on fire for it. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm like those people who say, you know, how is how is society not more fascinated by this? Right. How how are people not captivated by this? I mean, when we finally have evidence come out, that's pretty hard to, you know, refute people still go, eh, maybe I don't know, you know, <laughs> Right. But, I mean, how do you go about living a day to day life? I mean, I've almost sometimes wondered about like a mass trance like effect. In in our civilization, because I don't understand why. I mean, I understand people have busy lives, and I'm I'm lucky. I have enough time and energy that I can think about these things. I recognize mm-hmm. that's a, that's a first world situation. Not everybody does. Nevertheless, I'm still surprised it's not caught more people's attention. Uh, but for me, absolutely, it feels like a calling.
2: No, yeah. what, a, what a great question. Um, well, I want to talk about religion. Let, let's uh, get into this more specifically. So, when we talk about religion uh you know we're often talking about systems right and you've touched on this a little bit already you know systems which uh create meaning and they they, they frame like the human experience within a larger story it's it's my place within this grand story and religion is a sort of a, a method by which we do that um, in addition it's it's not a surprise that um a lot of the world's religions when you study them and you clearly have you know they, they seem to have their roots in, uh, sort of very, uh, real things, the changing of the seasons, the movement of the stars in the sky, uh, our own biology, it gets reflected in our religious, uh, sort of traditions and rituals. Um, the, these religious systems, they kind of serve as like, a I I think of them almost like as a human operating system, you know, like the, it's a, it's a software that, that runs on the human hardware, um, that helps us navigate the world. Um, so when looking at it sort of from that perspective and that lens, you know, do you see some parallels with uh, religious uh, sort of ideas and concepts uh, and u- ufology uh, it- itself? You know, like one example might be uh, the, uh, the priestly class in the religious uh, world would be uh, analogous to content creators <laughs> i don't want to put yourself in that group but i guess i just did <laughs> um but you know do, do are there some parallels that you see there uh, between uh religion and and sort of the um tenets of religious structure and and u- u- ufology and what we see out there
1: yeah that's a great question uh i could go in many different directions um let me first point out that i i agree with you about the way that religion tends to serve a a role, almost like software, you know? And um, I've heard it put this way, you know, when we use our personal computers and we drag a file into a trash bin, right? We know we're not actually doing that literally, right? That's a representation that really is about files that are stored digitally that really come down to zeros and ones, right? Mm -hmm. It has, it's completely removed from what's actually happening, but it's a, it's a useful, helpful way for us to do something in a, in what feels like a meaningful way that we has meaning for us and we understand and is easy to access. I think, yes, religion serves that role. I think that speaking of priestly class, you know, in modern society, the the Neil deGrasse Tyson's of the world have become the new the new sort of priestly class. You know when right. when uh, spaceships are in the sky, regardless of whether it might involve consciousness and, and elements of spirituality, the first thing pe- reporters want to talk to is astronomers. Right? They just right. think an astrophysicist is today's priest. Um, it wouldn't occur to them to go talk to a priest. Um, so that's interesting how that's changed. But it's it's not dissolved it's just shifted right mm-hmm. so from we went from priests to now astrophysicists and um and in terms of within ufology i find it very interesting how you get this kind of dichotomy you get the the nuts and bolts people right who are um fascinated by sort of the tech, technological aspects right that there could be these really advanced craft and this means you know aliens from alpha centauri are here and that's really cool and alien civilizations some people are just sort of focused on that level mm-hmm. and then there's the other side involving experiencers and people who follow experiencers who've had this entirely different and much deeper and more broad uh spiritual awakening because mm-hmm. of this now of course there's the then there's the negative aspect too and we can talk about that but many people have taken it on kind of like in replacement for a religion you know mm-hmm. and i know uh, Jacques Vallée was was really convinced in the 1970s that uh, UFOs were going to turn into the next big religion. That hasn't really happened, but you see elements of that around. And in terms of the priestly class within ufology, like you said, what I find interesting is, you know, you have someone like David Fravor, you know, someone like that, or um, a Tom DeLong, you know, mm-hmm. who's had experiences um, knows some things and then suddenly people ascribe to them all sorts of authority about everything in life. You know what I mean? (laughs) So it's not like Tom, can you talk to us about, you know, playing guitar and (laughs) what you happen to learn when you talk to those generals, but it's like suddenly Tom knows about their intentions and he knows about all the ones that are here and what their ultimate aims are. And he must know this and he must know that. And we very quickly ascribe to these other people, and they're not asking for this. We just do it, right? And suddenly, overnight, they have thousands of followers on Twitter, and people assume because they've seen a tic-tac that mm-hmm. they must have this really advanced knowledge in <laughs> all these areas. Right. A- and and which I find interesting. But it just again, it shows you that this is a this is a human tendency. It's not just within ufology. It's not just within Christianity or just within Islam. Or just within, uh, you know, the domain of science and academia, this is just what humans do. And that's right. Whatever particular group we're in, we we look to ascribe th- that authority to someone.
2: Right. Just what you talked about earlier, this man myth monument uh, type of progression, and that there's this inertia that gets generated once that uh, account, that firsthand account, is shared, and and followers of a certain size accumulate right it's not necessarily a following of, of three or four it's like there's this sort of critical mass that is reached at which point it begins this snowballing effect and as you were kind of talking through that it made me think about my own uh history and and, and with religious studies and particularly with christianity you know thinking about uh the writers of the new testament or if there were any firsthand uh, first-hand experiencers of, of that story how they may have felt pressure uh, from their constituents, uh, to, to keep that ball moving forward at uh, that ball rolling downhill, not that they wanted to embellish, uh, per se, but there's this, again, this inertia that almost drives that in a direction that ends up really kind of being out of their control.
1: Yeah, it's that happens. And I think also what happens is pretty quickly within a generation or two. And of course, as you know, from your background, with religious history these become oral traditions for a long time before they're ever written down right and when when that's the case it has all sorts of opportunity for embellishment to come in it's sort of the the standard you know i'm going to talk through the cup through a string to another yes. cup that you're listening Telephone. to and you're going to you mm-hmm. know and it goes on and on and by the time it gets to the 10th person it's actually changed a fair bit right right you have that going on and i think even more importantly you have this human tendency to want to turn our ancestors into heroes. Mm -hmm. Right. So you got someone like, you know, the apostle Paul and, you know, some of the other apostles who saw when he was persecuting Christians before he had kind of his conversion experience and they go, yeah, we know Paul. I mean, he he wasn't, he he was quite a ball of work before, you know, he came on our side kind of thing. Whereas now Christians and evangelicals now, when they think about Paul, they just have this glowing perspective of him. They even have a hard time reading the Bible, reading the new Testament, And really seeing him as a human being and even seeing some of the flaws that are kind of there if you're paying attention. Right. And so even when it comes to people like, you know, Moses and whatnot, having these crazy experiences in the Old Testament, again, I think the reason why people sort of dogmatically and automatically assume that's not the UFO phenomenon is because they think, no, that that, that was a completely different era of history. That was the era of revelation when Mm. God was like reaching down and and touching us directly and that's not like today but if you think about that it's just it's a pure prejudice it's right. it's just again it's that desire to want to make now simpler put it in a box put it in a book right so then for evangelicals it's sort of the the era of the bible rather than the era of revelation so mm-hmm. now it's safe it's in this text it's always going to be the same i feel comfortable because of it right
0: meanwhile it was probably exactly the same back then as it is today like it was just men walking around having exactly. epiphanies yep. and, yeah. and writing about- Trying to things.
1: make sense of these bizarre things happening. Yeah, exactly. And, will, will this and, be and, a and, and probably just as confused even after they've said these things and passed on these teachings. And yet we want to treat them like they're these pillars who just have these super crystal clear understandings and never wrestle with the same sort of human challenges that all of us do.
2: Right.
0: Will this be a religion?
1: I mean, it's it's a fair question. I think that depending on partly on what the the agents behind the phenomenon do, and I say that deliberately, plural, because I I my take is that this is much more complex than than most still realize. And again, speaking of human tendencies, we have a tendency for simplicity. We want to the same way that our, our computer system it makes it simpler when we can drag a file into a trash can. That feels easy and relatable. Um, we don't really want to know about the complexity, uh, of what's going on inside a computer. Right. Um, same way, you know, um, we, we, it's easier for us to go, what are the aliens doing? What is their purpose? Like singular, like it's one entity or one race that's here and they have a purpose. And, um, again, and that's why I think you get this tendency from one group to sort of paint them all negative and another group paint them as all positive. You know, it's either all love or light, or it's all sort of demonic, uh, you know, turning humans into zombies kind of thing. Um, again, it's that tendency to want to simplify. And in t- to answer your question more directly in terms of religion, depending what happens, I mean, seems to me that a lot of what's been going on has been meant to happen on the subconscious level. So I'm definitely in Jacques Vallée's camp that there's some sort of control system going on that is happening underneath our noses that we're not even aware of and especially the elite of our culture are not aware of it and yet it can over time create massive transformation uh which i think is unsettling to many because they feel like they're not agents of their own destiny kind of thing but i think that's what's going on i think if the ufo phenomenon did something more direct and revelatory you know we we have this anjali person who's talking about going into this mountain Mm -hmm. um you know and supposedly uncovering this alien base something like that happens and there's direct evidence say if that happens in the future sometime this year and you've got the message she's bringing of this peace love and light connection then sure i think a whole bunch of people could then jump on that and that could become a kind of modern day religion
2: Mm -hmm. Right. And where do you see some of these uh, friction points uh, emerging? So uh, we know of the uh, example from Luis Elizondo about the folks within the Pentagon who seem to think you did a whole episode on this in fact or related to this topic, uh, pushing back against uh, studying this uh, phenomenon because of their uh, religious conviction. Um, how do you see kind of us navigating, all of these different perspectives. And, and we are having, I recognize this in, in full view of this place that we ourselves are in in this Western uh, space uh, where we have um, a pretty shared kind of fabric that is, uh, you know, comfortable to us. And there are loads of other people around the world who hold entirely different uh, worldviews and religious perspectives. And they're not even really having that com- this conversation with us right now, at least in the, in the way that uh, we seem to view it
1: right absolutely um again really important question and i think i'm one of the things i've been most most amazed by because i was most one of the ways that integral theory against again was really revelatory for me was realizing developmental levels that co that coexist simultaneously around the world within our civilization so within western culture as also you know in the middle east and elsewhere different ones but you have these different worldviews that again they're they're simultaneously, absolute, but about different things. And they're all going on at the same time. So when people ask the question, what will disclosure look like? There's no way to answer that in a singular, because, um, you know, we, uh, we are not, we may be a human species, but we have a wide variety of, uh, differences between us, different cultural views, uh, in the West, for instance, we, we really don't think Anything that you can't measure, right? And that you can't reproduce through the scientific method even exists. A lot of people think that. Right. In other cultures, they have no problem believing that all sorts of other things exist. If you go to India, a very different view, and they might look at the phenomenon in a very different way. They may fit it into sort of their pre-existing notions of how these extra-dimensional realities have always coexisted. So it's not, a, it's not a reach for them, but they not might not pick alien, you know, or as their first category to ascribe to that uh, experience. Um, and then within, yeah, when people say, you know, government, is this big, bad thing. And, you know, the government's doing this and the government's holding back information. I get that. And it's certainly true that we've had 75 years of not only holding back information, but deliberate misinformation campaigns, deliberate, uh, you know, desire to confuse people, this constant, uh, technique of bleeding out a little bit of truth with all sorts of falsehoods. So you get this stop and start kind of thing until people eventually are exhausted and just think the whole thing's hogwash somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, while that's been going on, uh, at the same time, government has a, uh, a broad assortment of different people with different worldviews, just like society does. Right. So, like Luis Elizondo ran into some people just wanted to shut down the conversation, the investigation from the get-go because they just assumed these were demons. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've talked about this before, you know, when you have a uh, sort of a perspective on reality that you either have humans and animals right from the earth. If it's not that you only have two other options, Satan and demons uh, or God and angels. And, Again, because of a funny kind of like suspicion of anything new, getting back to what we talked before about man, myth, monument, this doesn't fit within my nice worldview, That's nice, crisp and clean, I'm going to say that's negative. Mm -hmm. And so you get all sorts of sort of, you know, cherry picking uh, different parts of scripture and applying them only in a certain way. Uh, and you end up with this idea that anything that's parading in our skies, no matter how benevolent it seems to be, no, I don't care if it healed your dog or your grandma, mm-hmm. you know, or if it's giving you things that are helping you live your life differently and, and making you feel more spiritually alive than you ever have before. I'm going to assume that's satanic because I feel safer uh, and more comfortable if I have a nice familiar surroundings to to get up in the morning with um, is what it comes down to. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, on the one hand, it's humorous. On the other hand, it's kind of, you know, a little bit infuriating. It can be if you look at it from a certain perspective, that you've got people within government trying to make the decision for us, you know, saying, I'm just going to go ahead and say this is demons, and we can just stop there. You know? <laughs> And, and my understanding is Luis Elizondo is actually a religious person. So it's not like right. he's right. an atheist saying, I got to get these Christians. He's saying, come on. I mean, we shouldn't be afraid of truth. If this is truth, then let's let it out. Let's let our entire civilization uh, uh, grapple with this and figure out what it means. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's super complicated co- uh, question to to deal with. And disclosure is not going to be simple no matter how it happens. Right.
2: And, and I
0: was what? just going to say, Go Lou is an extraordinary individual. Because he's so well rounded, he's not uh, given to political zealotry in any way. Yet he's very patriotic. Yet he's open to new ideas. Yet he's has a component of religiosity to him, self described. So it's he's a very very, you know I I you know I come from the military side of things. I work, uh, you know I work work over there today, even as a civilian. And he's a he he's a very interesting person. You don't run into a lot of people like him in my in my uh, my travels through through that. World.
1: Right, and and it's uh you know at great cost to him as well, right? Mm-hmm. I mean he yes. it wasn't like it was just he had this fantasy of going on a thousand podcasts. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know that wasn't that wasn't his goal. He <laughs> he just really said thought to himself, you know, this is not this is not going to move forward unless I make it happen and even if that means i have to resign from a job i've loved from you know serving a country that i've loved and i've i've loved this you know he he came from an immigrant family and so he never took for granted you know uh, his position as an american and i'm sure it was the hardest thing he ever had to do to sort of resign from that position and suddenly sort of be in direct opposition to some of what he was seeing going on but he believed so much in the principles behind what the what the military and the government was supposed to stand for that he was willing to do that and I yeah I have total respect for him as well because of that
0: that is a lifetime of paychecks that he gave up when he walked away from that retirement mm-hmm. that is getting paid for the rest of your life I could I could actually through a calculator at work figure out the percentage that he gave <laughs> up but that's a significant right. amount of money to say if I'm still breathing I'm getting paid
1: Right. Yeah, when you've got kids and a mortgage, that's not easy to do. You know? Definitely.
2: Well, it's it's funny and I don't want to dwell too much on it, but just in this last couple of minutes, we've we've talked about Elizondo and the way that many talk about uh, a religious figure. Right. So it's interesting how, uh, you know, we're all, we're all prone to this, as you said, Exo. I think you've made an excellent point about it earlier. You know, we're prone to, uh, to, to changing, uh, to, to transforming a person in, in a way that maybe they themselves have not uh, even you know, necessarily sought. But what I wanted to ask you is, so what, what do you make of the, um, uh, what i what I grapple with and struggle with is a lot of the stories that you hear in, in from experiencers, in ufology, uh, describe, uh, you know, sort of, kind of, uh, monolithic types of beings that, that they seem very one-dimensional in a way. um you know whereas whereas human culture we we can talk about human behavior in fact we we have and and how human behavior tends to do xyz fairly predictably but the expressions of that behavior uh vary quite a bit uh in 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 belief and practice there's a huge diversity in the world uh with our, our cultures and governments and whatnot Yet a lot of the experience that we hear about is uh, it, it, it's sort of almost asking us to sort of transform that diversity into a and, and flatten it down into kind of a more of a one dimensional type of, uh, of existence. Have you thought about that or what's your perspective? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's a it's a huge problem. So let me put it to you this way, guys. So when you watch sci fi movies and you see alien planets, what do, what, what do you usually see in terms of a landscape?
0: uh it doesn't look like natural with like a lot of woods and stuff doesn't look like earth generally if i'm thinking of star trek
2: anyway yeah or it's well, when i think theory,
1: about right? planets i think that like they'll have one planet like the entire planet's like the grand canyon or right. like right. the entire planet's like the arctic circle you know what i mean like in other words you have an ice planet or yep. you have a desert planet you know like you know in star wars and that's again i think that that silly sort of tendency we have as humans to to Truncate complexity into simplicity, mm, right? And right. so, even to the point where we go, oh, let's go to the ice planet. And yet, when well, we, we all think about it, right, a, a planet is a sphere that's going to have a, a variety of climatic conditions depending on where you go, how close you are to the equator for any planet, right? right? Even if you're on Mercury, it's a heck of a lot hotter at the equator than it is at the pole. Uh, so, that again sort of shows this tendency we have to want to simplify things. Um, and yeah, with the With a phenomenon, I think what happens is it's so open-ended. You know, there's so few assumptions we can begin with that that scares the living daylights out of people, but on a subconscious level. I don't think most people are aware of it. And so they very quickly run to or cling to any kind of um, assumption that they feel is safe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, yeah, I talked about this recently. Um, So when you have, when you can describe, say, the greys, the reptilians, the mantids, you know, if you can describe all of those in one paragraph each, something sounds fishy to me, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Because uh, I can't do that for one of you guys, right? Let alone for an entire uh, species, right? And um, you know, it's to you, know, don't get a hold of EXO before he's had coffee in the morning, you know? <laughs> right. That that's 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 a separate paragraph, right? Right. Right there for one person. So yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It, it's not helpful, uh ultimately, I don't think. And and again, one of the things I deliberately try and do with a podcast is I don't overly commit to something, even though I recognize in myself sometimes that right. That desire to do that, it's its a temptation we all feel because, again, when you can make your environment feel familiar, it feels safer. That's inherently a good feeling. Right. But the more you can sort of hold that at arm's length and say, and again, I think this comes down to some sort of energetic spiritual core a person has that uh, allows them to hold other things more lightly. I think uh, sort of some of my background in sort of Buddhist tradition and having sort of more of a... Um, don't hold on to anything good or bad too tightly, you know, like law, law of non-attachment kind of thing yep. um, really helps with this because, um, and I see, I really do like functionally daily feel like everything is passing, you know, mm-hmm. that everything is one season to another season, to, including this lifetime. Therefore, I I have less of a need, I think, to cling to something that feels certain than most people. So I I feel like I, like you mentioned earlier, have more of a plastic view towards these kind of things. And in terms of trying to move forward and understanding it more when you really, because what's amazing is when you look back at interviews from the seventies, eighties, nineties, it's the same questions over and over again. You know, like we're not, in some ways we're not getting much further because again, we want to cling to these really simplistic views. Um, so yeah, absolutely. One of these species certainly would have uh, massive complexity, just like human beings w- would have, why wouldn't they, you know, and, um, uh, they would have their own evolutionary track and you'd have a huge, uh, genetic assortment, uh, in their background, just like we do in ours. And you'd have cultural aspects that come in that are going to vary depending on, you know, uh, where a, that particular individual from that species, uh is from those kind of things i mean again even this tendency to want to make some of these alien species borg like you know or like right. insect like i think again is um is getting into that temptation that it's simpler it's easier to just say they're 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 about one thing and we can name it sure the, the uh,
0: problem, i was just going to say i'm sorry nathan, nathan no please the problem is that time is our t- our time on earth is so short mm, yeah. compared to the age of the earth that you were saying like since the 90s that's like not even like the blink of an eye like in in the span of time so i think these questions will be answered i just don't know if we're going to be alive when, when they are you yeah know,
2: unfortunately no i mean that's an excellent point our, our lifetimes are so ephemeral uh and by the time that we i mean if, if some of us even do <laughs> if we get to a place of wisdom uh and reflection you know the the, the sun is setting you know so it's difficult to uh, to create a lasting foundation of knowledge and you know we, we we do our best to do that through uh the sharing of knowledge and, and philosophy and story and whatnot but even even still the lived experience is the most valuable experience um so you can you can learn and you can read all you want but you know living it out in your life is the is the greatest sort of teacher uh that you can have and you know coming back to some religious themes too uh, about what you touched on we have to sort of push back against this wish fulfillment that I think we see a lot of in ufology. That we can map onto things like uh, a desire for salvation, uh, a desire for oneness, uh, a, uh, a seeking uh, of revelation. You know, all of these are are, are very uh, strong religious concepts. Um, where the the veil is lifted and all truth is revealed. You know, the, these are things that I think all humans yearn for because we, we are faced every day with the end. We're faced with, you know, the, the end of our existence. And so we're looking for meaning uh, in everywhere we can, every place we, we can find it. Um, you know, what I want to talk about too next, I guess, is um, what you know for folks who are coming to this subject pretty recently and i would like to hope that there are a lot you know who are who are turning on to the, this topic now for, for the first time or giving it a, a harder look what's some advice that you would give to folks who uh, and maybe we could use ufo twitter as a good sort of microcosm you know who are navigating that that, that space how does someone um inoculate themselves uh, to uh, falling into kind of traps or, or cyclical uh, thoughts, you know, patterns, you know, where, where they get locked into a certain thing? Or would you take the position of, you know what, like, let the journey unfold
1: as it may? Yeah, good question. I think um, <clears throat> it depends a lot on the people and their background. And again, how much they tend to hold their perspectives lightly or not. If you are the kind of person who has not developed the tendency yet to hold your perspectives lightly. Uh, So for instance, in my case, um, because I've sort of transitioned through several different worldviews, different paradigms in my lifetime, I now hold whatever I happen to be arriving at now much more lightly because when I know I wouldn't even recognize who I am today if I were to meet myself 20 years ago, then uh, how can I take now so seriously? And yet what what's really fascinating is when you actually research that, you find that people, again, they unconsciously make that mistake. They think, okay, who I am now, I finally have arrived. Mm-hmm. It doesn't occur to them that they'll be as different in 10 years or they might be from now as they are now from 10 years ago, especially mm-hmm. if they keep moving and are actually honestly, objectively taking in new data and trying to grow and learn. I mean, one of the things I find most fascinating is how some people I grew up with pretty much are the same as they were then. you know they haven't changed much since we were teenagers mm. and that's really hard for me to understand because um, for me it's about always taking in more information, learning, growing, adapting my perspective constantly. Uh, so I, I think that again that just hints at how much we really prefer familiarity simplicity. Um, but in terms of the phenomenon, what's interesting is people might sort of come in because they heard about the Nimitz, you know, and, uh, and they might initially go, wow, cool. You know, um, is there going to be uh, an Independence Day kind of event? You know, mm-hmm. like they'll, they'll think about these Hollywood movies they've seen and they'll, they'll come in with that, with all sorts of cultural assumptions, right. That have been fed to them unconsciously again, you know, uh, Diana Pasolko talked about this, that we sort of um unconsciously inhale <laughs> this sort of cultural baggage when it comes to um the UFO phenomenon and it's back there and over a period of time we can't even uh anymore distinguish between if we heard something in a movie or if it was actually an experience you're supposedly giving a real account. So right. we confuse that over time, which makes it even more complicated. Um, and on top of that, because science uh has been you know, away from this completely, you know, like it's just been a, a, a territory they're, they're not allowed to go to, you know, they can't investigate this. So what that means, or at least in their, in their minds, they can't, because again, it's tricky. It, it, it brings up so many questions about the assumptions behind the scientific method and, and rationalism and um, the modern world that that's scary. Uh, mm-hmm. so you have all sorts of dogmatic um positions within and within science and within academia which just make it so that they have not been part of this discussion and because of that you have a lack of scientific rigor that is useful you know it, it won't get you all the way but it'll at least get you to first base mm-hmm. you know and but we don't even have that so we have people coming in uh, and adopting views without ever having to go through the rigor of being tested, really being examined, being looked at objectively. And so you you do tend to get this uh, a lot like religion. You kind of get people just adopting all, like, you know, from your Christian background, you know, are, are you Baptist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you, do you have a vineyard background, you know, are right. you charismatic? I mean, there's so many flavors, right? And so you go back to the 1950s, 1960s, where Christianity was more just the dominant uh, everyday experience for most Americans. Right. And you had every flavor you can imagine. You know, oh, you're that kind of Baptist. Well, I'm not sure you're going to heaven because I'm this kind of Baptist, right? That's right. And that's just the Baptist, let alone everybody yeah, else. Exactly. So um, yeah, it's, it's uh, I would say to people, try to come in uh, with an open mind, Try to do your best not to make any any conclusions until you've like spent a year just listening. And I know that's going to be difficult for most people, and most people are not used to going through their lives that way. Yeah, but that's what I would suggest because you're going to find yourself, you know, ping-ponging around otherwise. Um, and I think I think the challenge too is that just like in our society today. You get these echo chambers, right, where mm-hmm. w- one group tunes into Fox News and says, this is my data set and my interpretation of reality. Somebody else watches CNN and gets their own data set and their their interpretation of reality. And those two are completely living in different realities. You get some of that within UFO Twitter. I sometimes see people say, man, UFO Twitter is really mean today. And I'm thinking to myself, well, doesn't that depend on how you curate your, <laughs> your <best? laughs> right. I mean what is ufo twitter you know and, that's right uh, um so you've got all these different sort of echo chambers within that everybody who you know believes that these are demonic and they mean us harm to the love and light people and they don't really talk to each other but i will say that if people come in even with the nuts and bolts kind of mentality you can't go very far in before you start getting into the consciousness uh, manipulation piece and the perception disparities that people have that suddenly pretty quickly if you honestly follow the data begin to be get more questions about the nature of ultimate reality so that's Mm -hmm. that's where you end up going if you're honest and if you just keep following the data
0: do you think there's both flavors do you find that there may be groups that are um trying to perhaps fix how we're treating the planet and and interested in our welfare or some that are indifferent or, and, or some that are maybe not friendly toward us what flavors do you see based on your analysis?
1: Yeah. I, I appreciate even how you gave those different versions there, because I, I definitely think what I tend to say is my answer is all of the above uh, and what I mean and more, you know, so if you, if you give me uh you know, 15 choices, I'll probably tick off most of those and then uh, leave a, a room for a bunch that we haven't even considered yet, that we don't even have the imagination potential to conceive of yet. Um, I think that, again, part of the problem is, part of the challenge is, people try and draw conclusions as if this is one phenomenon, right? And, and we sort of, you know, for convenience sake, we say the UFO phenomenon, which is a singular term, right? Yeah. But this is definitely phenomena. And I think there's, different groups and what makes it even more complex is they're not all necessarily extraterrestrial in the way that we think about that right and that's that's become a big part of the um conversation too and even someone like Luis elizondo who you know coming from a pretty straight line military background has said you know read chains of the sea you know think about the interdimensional aspect what if they've been here all along what about mankind's plural you know Mm -hmm. like all these things that he's these sort of hints that he's dropped to try and expand the conversation in breadth before we go depth, just let's like, let's, let's open end this a little bit more in terms of what could be involved here. And from my perspective, so you've got, yeah, you've got different groups. And just like in human civilization, like I said earlier, disclosure is going to be complicated because you have people with very different worldviews who have a different developmental lens, which colors everything they see about reality. Right. Um, You have that, just within our species now you've got these different species maybe even within those different species just like ours you might have different developmental lenses right again like like you touched on nathan we had this tendency to to really truncate that and say they're like this which you know you know if you if you've traveled around the world and i've done some of that um you quickly realize there's some pretty big differences culturally and the norms you know just Mm -hmm. the 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 basic assumptions about how you're supposed to behave as human being varies from culture to culture. So apply that to these different species, and then take into the fact that you have different species with completely different evolutionary backgrounds um, who might experience time and reality very differently than us, you know, and we can touch on maybe later, how even how it gets even more complex and fascinating to me is how even human beings have a more, uh, broad, deep uh, modality when they're in the presence of these others. you know. So mm-hmm. even who we understand ourselves to be becomes much more complex than I, than I think we're, it's more complex than we can answer based on the data we have available to us in our waking experience day to day, which makes it really complex. But yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there are different groups. Some are highly advanced uh, from a consciousness point of view and really are trying to help facilitate our our evolution both interior and exterior uh and i think there's definitely evidence that since the dawn of the atomic age there's been an uptick in the level of intervention um because of our self-destructive nature and just how uh you know we're on a precipice of self-destruction basically um so yeah different groups and different um different agendas absolutely and different levels of consciousness development all that's all that's mixed in and that's why it's that much more complex
0: mm-hmm.
2: well since we've gotten into some uh speculative territory um <laughs> I, I i mean i i think this is great this is a great transition so you know modern humans are a couple of hundred thousand years old right and as far as we know um, uh, civilization really did not emerge until the last few thousand of those couple hundred thousand years um, do you see uh the hand of the phenomena in that uh, in that transition do you do you see the hand of the phenomena in uh in the 20th century and with the advent of flight and and space travel and all that kind of thing and and the birth of the internet you know how do you see it playing out now
1: yeah good question and i would say i don't have um really hardline resolved answers or perspectives on that i that's one of the things i'm holding with plasticity um i think that There's something to this idea that whatever um, intervention is involved, whatever direction is happening, may largely be um, happening at a level that we can't even perceive. Mm -hmm. And again, I think one of the, the biases and the prejudices that people bring to this is that they we're so used to being the top dog on the block, right? We're so used to just assuming we are the definition of an intelligent species, right? that's we, we've had nothing to compare ourselves to we don't we can't talk to you know our our martian friends who who have a, a similarly advanced society but they have some differences and then, then compare and, and contrast we can't right we we are the definition of an intelligent species in our perspective that we know so of. that we know of and, and so so much so that it's very difficult for us to imagine even to imagine that there could be a species that eclipses us to the same degree that we eclipse, you know, like a chimpanzee or something. It's, it's, it's very difficult for people to go there. And I was talking to my son, uh, a couple of days ago and he was, I was talking about people who have near death experiences or out of body experiences, or even who contact the phenomenon. Yes. I talked to my kids about this stuff <laughs> <That's laughs> and, cool and i said you know sometimes they perceive colors that are outside the spectrum of what we're used to seeing and the second you come back into this modality you try and translate it you go it's sort of off white but you know that's not really what it was but you no longer even have the apparatus to translate that properly Mm -hmm. and when his response was but how can there be a color that's not what we already see like in other (laughs) words his imagination (laughs) can go there right sure like even though we know already there's all sorts of parts of the spectrum we just don't see. Right. That's why we have night vision goggles and whatnot. Um, uh, and yet that's what we do. We tend to, uh, to make that assumption. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say about that.
2: Well, and then I, what I, or I, am curious to your thoughts on this. So it, if, if we're dealing with intelligences that may be akin to us, like we are to the chimpanzee, how do you, see that relationship playing out in a in in a meaningful way for humanity that 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 could be trustworthy um what would be sort of things you would look for to know that you could place your trust in that intelligence if it's playing, you know, to use a a, a popular term, in you know, like three D chess or whatever, four D chess, you know, right. if, if it's playing that kind of game with you, how would you know? How would you be able to evaluate that?
1: It's a great question, and I, I think a lot about those kind of things exactly. Uh, and so, this is what I would say: a couple of things, because I think that some of them are as advanced from us as we are from the chimpanzee. Think about trying to say if you're you're taking one of the chimpanzee because you know, they've got some sort of, you know, blood clot that you need to treat or something like that. Right. How are you going to explain that to the chimpanzee? You just can't. Right. And so the chimpanzee is still going to have an experience though, still going to have an interpreted experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And based within its paradigm of reality, same thing for us. And I, and I really do think part of what's going on here, I think this is, this is sort of a starting point I begin with. I think, we tend to approach the phenomenon with the assumption that our perspective on reality is about 98 percent right and we've got two percent missing right even though our own astrophysicists admit that none of our models of astronomy work without something like dark matter which we don't even know what that is and by the way that's like you know 99 of the universe right? right this thing that we sort of we sort of go Again, to make ourselves more secure, we go, yeah, we understand how the universe works, even though we have this one category that takes up 99% that we don't even really know what it is. We just know it must be there uh, by default because nothing else would work otherwise. That's, that's a huge faith statement, right? We talked about um, religious dogma. Talk about a promissory note saying we, we will get this. We will know this, right? right. That's, that's a huge, huge assumption. And most people are flying blind on that most astrophysicists won't even admit to you that that's hilarious basically that that mm-hmm. that they're they're behaving as if we have a really strong model of reality when really we don't so my perspective is we have maybe 2% and we're missing 98 okay mm-hmm. i really do think that's that may even be overstating it because i think this is somewhat like the layers of the onion mm-hmm. it just keeps on going right so the most you can understand is a sort of localized layer based on your current level of consciousness and your interpretation and experience of the world which is going to change by the way over time right um, depending on your worldview and your perspective and your evolutionary development so all that is to say when people have abduction experiences when people have these experiences with, with these others that seem to happen in alternate realms of existence just like near-death experiences and out of body experiences do i think that we are trying, our brains, our primitive brains, our, tr- our chimpanzee brains are trying to make sense based on, um, on the hooks we have in our heads of experiences that are so beyond that it ends up being massively mistranslated. I mm-hmm. think that's what happens. And I think actually part of the reason why, um, I, again, people, again, because of this assumption of, uh, we are the primary intelligence. People go, well, if someone's not telling me the truth, if someone's abducting me and erasing my memory, that must be negative, right? Right. It doesn't occur to them, just like when we tranquilize a monkey or a bear to move it outside of a populated area so it doesn't get shot. uh, It's not malevolent. It's actually benevolent, right? Right. Um, In the same way, I think that um, there are good reasons why they may be doing that. I have no problem with that. and I think it's it's kind of a, a bizarre prejudice human beings have that if something's doing if something's doing something behind your back or without your full knowledge that you assume it must be bad it must be evil because right. that is based on the assumption to begin with that you are of a high enough intelligence that you could understand it if you wanted to and i really question that here sure. um, so it's right. answer that's just essentially the last answer your last question because i think that's really important the one about how do we know it's trustworthy right and, and for me, I look at it like, again, my integral theory background, um, spiral dynamics, how we see this ever-expanding circles of inclusion, circles of self-awareness that are ever-expanding, right? So this is predictable both for individuals and for entire uh, societies, right? That they move in these predictable ways towards expanding circles of inclusion, um, that I really do sort of one of my assumptions, because again, I don't think we can get out of bed in the morning without some assumptions about reality. That's just, you just have to do that to navigate life. One of mine is, is that, is that cosmic expanding circles of inclusion and self-awareness, which ultimately, again, from a sort of Buddhist perspective, uh, you know, consciousness is one and it's only illusion that makes you think that it's more than that. uh because that's the case i assume that a more advanced intelligence of which some of these are are going to be further along so therefore their their circle of inclusion is much broader than mine right Mm -hmm. so um so I, i trust that i trust i trust that there is this sort of um even though i'm not religious in the sense of following a particular dogmatic uh religion religious perspective i am very much at the core have this sense of this sort of like uh spiritual heart behind the cosmos that's sort of the uh the that is the impulse of the directionality of that expanding circle of inclusion and self-awareness that leads to sort of this oneness consciousness so mm. that's what i trust is that again i don't assume they're all more advanced than us i think some aren't i think some maybe just have this sort of inherent evolutionary capacity to dimension hop. And they may be no more advanced than a crocodile, but, uh, <laughs> but there are some that are much more advanced. And I trust that. I trust that sort of cosmic constant. That's one of the assumptions I bring to the, to the table.
0: I, mm-hmm. I think the crocodile one is the one that like, uh, Terry, what's his name? saw somebody, help me oh no, that was the hmm. Manta. I'm trying to think, what's Terry, the guy who saw the one in Arkansas, the former air force, guy? Oh, loveless. Loveless. You guys don't know that story.
1: Well, I know no. that the reptilians in general definitely okay. uh, y- y- get get are sort of painted in, in a negative corner. Although again, even there, you I've heard I've heard uh exceptions to the rule. So um again, I, I think it. that, that hints that it's more complicated than we sometimes think. Right. I
0: love the reptiles and the mantis. But this is what I want to say though, EXO, that I'll just push back just a little bit in, in from the standpoint of how I think we differ from the chimpanzees. I think technologically speaking, probably all of them, these different groups are so far advanced to us that, um, you know, that it's it's nearly beyond belief. But I think emotionally and intellectually that there are people among us and two of them might be on this podcast uh, with me right now. Neither one of them is me uh, <laughs> that, could, that could actually under, could possibly have an experience and understand what's going on without the need of uh, uh, to be anesthetized or something like that and be able to sort of say, okay something's happening here and it's really weird and it might be painful, but if I can endure the pain, they can do what they need to do. I mean, look at the Mm -hmm. experience that Travis Walton had and, you know, I don't know how sophisticated or educated a person he was, but when you listen to him speak about it, he seems to understand that he thinks they healed him from what happened with the beam, that, uh, that they saw him, his cohort saw him fall to the ground uh, when he was hit with that beam. And so I think that's the difference between us and the chimpanzees, and I'm not saying I don't think we're not in evolution of them or anything like that, because I'm sure we, we are. Um, but I think we have the ability to understand that the chimpanzees don't. Does that make sense? No, I, I agree
1: with you and I think that there are, so I'd say a few things about that. One thing I would say is that, yeah, I think um, Travis Walton and other people who have had, see one of the things in the data that I find fascinating is that if you ask people a week after they had a contact slash abduction experience, was it a good experience? Most will say no right? But you give them 10 years and actually the majority will say yes. They, they'll say it was still traumatic, still shocking, still discombobulating, but they wouldn't trade it because it's created a sort of like impulse, uh, uh, a catalyst for a spiritual transformation for them to at first crumbling and, and fracturing their understanding of reality, but then restoring it with this, this something much more profound and deeper and broader. And I do think that's part of what's going on here is that um, part of it is about trying to birth us into a a, a new way of seeing the world, and I, in the podcast recently, I used that analogy. I've heard Whitley Strieber use it before. That it is like a birthing experience. We go from this familiar, safe environment in the womb to suddenly we're born. It's cold, you know. We're seeing all these strange things. We, you know, we we start crying, right? It's just mm-hmm. discombobulating. I think that that is something like this. I also think that what I'm getting at is that when when we have time to get past that ontological shock that we initially have when we have these experiences that we think are not supposed to happen right mm-hmm. um and we have enough time to think about why did anything really bad happen to me was it actually dangerous right, right. <laughs> uh, and then you start going actually maybe this was this was positive and and what could it mean and so we 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 absolutely can gather meaning from it i just don't think we I, it's like the onion thing it's not that the you know so for instance, when when a child, right, when a five-year-old has an interpretation of the world, it's not that it's wrong. It's just incomplete, right? It's partial. So I think we can have partial understanding much more than a chimpanzee for sure. And we can, we have some hooks we can hang it on. I just think reality in inevitably, eternally, is that kind of um, onion situation where there's always layers beyond what we can understand. We can interpret it, ground it, experience it in a certain way that makes sense for who we are. Mm-hmm. But what I often am amazed by, even some perspectives that I have today wouldn't make sense to me 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. To myself 10 years ago, same genetic background, same you know cultural history. And if that can happen to one individual, one human being in 10 years, then what does a species that might be a billion years older than us look like? Like right. at that point, re- and like you just said, Nathan, we're talking about modern civilization being a few thousand years old, a, a cosmic blink of the eye, right? Mm-hmm. You add a billion years and suddenly, if if we're honest, it's just a blank slate. Like we just, our imagination, I can't even imagine that, right? When you, when you look at science fiction, most of the technology that they say is going to happen in like 2500 so buck rogers in the 25th century i think it is whatever it was in the 70s -hmm. you know you see technology it looks hilariously outdated within 10 years right the most our imagination can usually go is about 30 years right Right. in terms of uh beyond that we we and literally like even 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 companies that exist today the googles of the world you know didn't exist 30 years ago right right? so (laughs) it's like things are happening so quickly and and it's and it's it's getting it's you know it's getting accelerated astronomically accelerated right uh so you we're moving towards this sort of singularity so again what does that look like a billion years right uh, more it it just really is a blank slate at that point our imaginations can't even wrap around it
2: right and i think this is an argument against a one-and-done disclosure, which is which is something that I think you find pretty rampant in in ufology, that there's this desire for, you know, one tearing of the veil, all the secrets are revealed. Now we know the truth with a capital T, and I think we need to be real honest with ourselves that that that's not even what we want, you know, because it, here's something that. know has bothered me since since i was a child and that that, that's you know growing up in a in a christian sort of paradigm a lot of the uh, uh sort of talk of of heaven the afterlife you know it's like this place where everything's perfect everything's everything's done everything's finished i mean how boring and dull does that sound you know so we have to i think remember that part of what brings uh so much joy to the human experience is the act of discovery and and you answered that question i think really elegantly uh about that 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 the journey of knowledge you know has to be taken it can't just be given you can't just get a pamphlet and then all of a sudden you know everything you need to take that journey and if we're lucky that journey never ends if if we're lucky that adventure just continues and I think we all need to remind ourselves of that—that that, you know, there's this tendency we have to to really just want to be saved from our from our problems. You know, so uh, the world's on fire. You know, there's problems everywhere, and uh, ET is going to come and save us, and it's all going to be good. You know, we need to, we need to fight against that tendency because that's not really what makes us us, and and shouldn't make us what is us. You know, what what makes us us is the journey. The journey of discovery of moving out past the horizon and and elizondo himself you know uses that analogy uh of of journeying out past the horizon and it may seem scary but that's really where you know where we have to go we can't we can't stay where we are we have to keep going yeah and i think more
0: like a statement
2: (laughs) (laughs) sorry not much
1: of a question there sorry (laughs) no but i I agree with that statement and i think that i think what's telling is that what you were sort of hinting at there with religious perspectives that sort of paint this picture of you know sitting on sitting on clouds in heaven playing harps you know um that 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 sounds like a good time i mean how how many hours can you do that before you kind of want to do something else you know like you can't play basketball you know in heaven <laughs> right i mean <laughs> and there's no work to be done like again when we have this this definition of work is this thing we have to do because it's how we make a living and feed our families versus the sense of calling that we talked about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. The sense of impulse to keep growing. F- for me, I've always been motivated by that impulse and that's what keeps me alive. It makes me feel alive. And, um, when, when people talk about, man, I wish I could retire and sit on a beach. I mean, again, I can do that for a couple of days and then I'm ready to like get Go back to get work. <laughs> you no. Know, yeah. Get my feet dirty and, and keep walking, you know, and keep mm-hmm. learning. And, um, yeah, I think that we do have to be aware of that tendency, again, to ascribe or to pass off our responsibility, you know. In the New Testament, there's that expression, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right. And and that actually sounds like a lot more wrestling than most evangelicals want to uh, want to hold on to. You know, right. it's um, again, it, so much of this has just become cultural inheritance that wasn't even part of the original traditions and same thing in ufology you know again it is sort of just again ascribing whether it's ascribing to jesus or to allah or to buddha or you know to a gray alien you know to quasar who's from planet Zinko, you know uh that he's going to give me all the answers again i agree with you that we have to walk that path you know we we often talk about or my wife and I talk about with our kids, you know, you don't like seeing your kids go through hard things, right? But you can't just give them a download of your experiences and say, hey, when I was 24, I did this. Not a good choice. Don't do that. And just take this download like the Matrix, and then you won't have to, right? No, they have to go through it themselves. And I think that actually is partly what is happening here too. I think that there really is sort of the the law of non-interference, right? The Star Trek thing, right? The prime directive that yep. people say a lot of experiences say they've heard that's part of what's in play here, right? Mm -hmm. That there is intervention, but it's done more on a subconscious level for the very reason you're pointing at Nathan, I think that only when we live something, when we go through something in order to overcome it, do we actually own it and therefore really become transformed by it. And so I think that is the tricky part of the trickiness here is that the intervention that's happening is happening at a level where we can still own our own experience and our own development, our own societal choices, but like Valet talked about with the control system, there's boundaries, mm. and the uh, you know you sort of think of the uh, the Truman Show, right? And he thinks he's living in one reality, and yet the entire thing is controlled to a certain degree. I think that may very well be happening, and happening at a level that we would never know for sure. So when I talked about early early on in this conversation, I had this sense that sometimes just you know, just behind the hills in a way that I can't see, there's something driving me mm-hmm. that I can't put my finger on. I think that's happening on a civilization level as well. And, um, and that the, some of the entities that were encountered in the Old Testament and in other religious traditions may very well have been agents from the same phenomenon that are, that are in subtle ways shaping, but inevitable ways and ways that really do impact the ultimate role or the ultimate direction, you know, you think about the butterfly effect, right? Mm -hmm. Someone goes back to the dinosaur era to the, you know, and, and steps on a leaf and then the entire course of evolutionary history changes. Right. I think when you're working at the level, some of these intelligences are where they experience time sort of simultaneously, or that's even the wrong word. Again, we, even our language is tricky. We can't talk about time without thinking about it in a linear fashion, but if they experience time as sort of as this seamless T- you know, past, present, future, then they could know exactly, precisely what subtle shifts have to happen to help direct the entire civilization. And they could be actually relatively simple changes, but they inevitably change things because they happen over the course of a million years or something like mm-hmm.
0: that. Yeah, for sure. This is, uh, this is this is fascinating. I feel like I'm presiding over a conversation between two brothers from other mothers. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's so great to hear you guys talk it's really everything I thought it was going to be when we organized this, so um, I'm really glad. And, by the way, Nathan, he said I asked a good question. <laughs> you that? did, man. Yeah, Absolutely. See? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> More than one person can ask a good question around here. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about a speed round, Exo, where we, we do some of the uh, the greatest hits, or maybe it's the B-sides of, like, the Led Zeppelin, Uh, traveling riverside blues that kind of stuff Uh, so I just want to see like I was curious because you've talked a lot about experiencers on your show um, what do you think uh, which one compels you the most like when you hear it it almost like makes the hair on your arm stand up or uh, which is the one do you find the most compelling if there is in fact one
1: well i think i would say more than it being one i would say what i find most compelling is how consistent some of the stories are across a wide variety of people even from different cultural backgrounds when the free experience for research study came out it found that even people whose primary language is not english were having some of these same experiences so that to me lends a lot of credibility when um when people, when when Whitley Strieber published *Communion* in the 1980s, and then suddenly, you had you know thousands of people around the world suddenly having this sense of I recognize that, you know that that was a fairly new thing for that, but that's become the quintessential face of the alien, right, in our culture. And yet, for a lot of people, subconsciously, something rang true with that. So that's it's not one t- case that really gets me. It's the fact that there's so much consistency around these different cases. Even for people who had no background in ufology, and especially I, I pay very close attention to people who make it very clear, and there's evidence even that the last thing they wanted to believe was that they were an alien contactee or abductee, you know? And you come across a lot of those stories where people went to psychologist after psychologist after psychologist wanting to be found clinically insane before believing they were actually an alien contactee. You know what I mean? Like that that tells me these people are not making it up. These are not people that are quick to fantasy thoughts. These are people who wanted to hold on to that narrow perspective of reality that felt familiar to them. And they did everything they could until the only thing left, the only thing left was to believe that somehow this was really happening. So that's that's what I would say about that. And of course, for me, I've had some of my own Mm -hmm. experiences with high strangeness and that absolutely changed my perspective forever. Uh, that, that's one thing I should have said in the beginning, you know, I had an experience with my wife in 2005 that I I still can't wrap my head around. And it, it once and for all said to me that what we've always been taught about what reality, what constitutes reality is incomplete.
0: What would you like to share that experience?
1: Sure. I can give you the, the quick outline. Um, so my wife and I were staying in a hotel. Uh, we were traveling across the country from Tennessee to Washington at the time. Uh, we were in the process of moving. Uh, we had a young daughter and my wife was several months pregnant with our son. And um, in the early morning hours, um, I was awoken by a figure at the end of our bed. My initial assumption was that it was our daughter who'd gotten up, maybe to use the bathroom, and maybe she was confused. what We weren't at home you know, I was going to help her because we're in a hotel, became quickly evident this was not our daughter. She was still sleeping in the bed next to us. This was something else. This was some sort of um, entity that to us appeared mostly humanoid and female. And I got up and started moving towards this being, thinking again, at first it was my daughter until I realized it wasn't, wasn't the right size or anything. And then what was interesting is the being Seem surprised that I could see it, and um, and what's fascinating is, is years later when I finally got around to reading some of the literature, I found that that's quite common. That when people do have those experiences, these beings go, "Oh, this one can see us," you know, like they they actually seem surprised by that. So it backed up, it slash she backed up and went right through the wall of the hotel and disappeared. So I did a very strange thing, which again, only later when I read the literature behind the phenomenon did I realize this was quite consistent as well, I turned around and went straight back to sleep. At least that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to just turn around and go to sleep, which doesn't make any sense from a behavioral point of view when you've just had this ontologically shocking experience, thankfully. And I'm really happy for this and I have a lot of gratitude for this. And I know a lot of people don't get this benefit, but my wife saw the whole thing too. So she woke up, saw the entire thing too. She stopped me from going to sleep. If she hadn't stopped me, I would have gone to sleep. And I'm certain I would have woken up thinking I had a weird dream and nothing else. But she stopped me from going to sleep. She said, "What? we gotta figure out what just happened. You can't go to sleep. We talked about it. That grounded it in my reality, okay? And in, in my wife's reality, we decided, and then even stranger, my wife or my daughter had these welts all over her body that she'd never had before. We didn't know what that was about. We there didn't seem to be any bugs in the bed. Maybe it was allergic reaction to sheets. We don't know. Anyway, we hit the road within a few hours, the welts were completely gone. And, um, yeah, so that, and what was even stranger is when I went back to bed, when I tried to go back to bed, my wife saw this being come back through the wall, really, back into really? our room, then go down the hall of the hotel room and, and then pass through the front door. Didn't open the front door, just went, you know, just went right through the front door was it
0: it clothed in something
1: but that's what's weird too and this this is what's so fascinating about this entire experience you'll sometimes have two experiencers who experience the same thing they both experience something but there's different elements so my wife only saw the upper torso of this being there were no legs i saw an entire body Hmm. and it was kind of um shimmering so it was hard to tell if it was clothing or uh, or what, because it, it just had an kind of ethereal kind of look to it, but it was fascinating because we both experienced this thing. We both grounded it in our reality, but even then there were some differences. Like my wife saw hair blowing, like as if it was being blowing in the wind. I didn't see that. So very strange. Um, and so it's even more discombobulating that we both saw it, but we saw different things. You know, again, this doesn't fit with our narrative about how reality works, where, we talk about objective or consensus reality, right? So my wife and I were both experiencing something, but there was only limited consensus, right? Mm. So that tells me again, that what reality actually is, is much more complex than we can grasp yet.
0: And I, pro- I promise, Nathan, I'll finish up here, but if you listen to a podcast with Tim McMillan, it was Andy, our, our friend from that UFO podcast, interviewing Tim McMillan, and an hour and a half into it or so, he asked him, about uh, a listener question was about Roswell. And basically Tim McMillan said that there's a guy that he has spoken with, but he can't reveal and is hoping that before his eventual death, that if he outlives him, uh, that he'll let him tell who he is. So I don't know if we would take that to mean a member of MJ12, et cetera, et cetera. But basically he said that the, that Roswell did happen, he did say that the the he told him Roswell happened. They weren't anthropomorphic beings, and that there was a nexus between what each individual saw. So right. They're looking at it, but they're interpreting differently, and that jobs with what you just said about you and your wife. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. and you have cases
1: like Fatima, you know, in Portugal, uh, which the Catholic Church claimed was an appearance of you know the Virgin Mary, and um, Catholic followers just gobbled it up and said, sounds good to us. And yet Jacques Vallée and other people with a background in the UFO phenomenon say, hey, this sure looks like a case of the UFO phenomenon to us, not uh, a religious apparition. But again, even there, the lines blur. And to your point, uh, different people experienced different things, saw different things, even uh, received different telepathic messages. So again, this is part of the complexities. We bring something to the table in these experiences. I don't think it's just that they're customizing experiences for us. I think our consciousness somehow primes the experience as well. So again, there's more questions than answers. And that's why, uh, it, it's fascinating to me, but I, 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 hold it loosely because there's so much we don't know yet, but it's, it's really intriguing.
0: All right. Uh, that was, uh, it really is. And, uh, let's let Nathan get the, uh, the last question in
2: it's on a scale of one to 10 with one being it's a disinfo campaign and 10 being uh they 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 know it all and uh they know the grant scheme uh how much does the u.s government know about this in your estimation
1: so i think Partly based on what we we talked about already, there are there are different people with different backgrounds, with different assumptions about reality to begin with, right? So, uh, within government as well, so that's just a slice of our civilization, like any other group. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have uh, varying uh, assumptions there. So uh, in terms of a best assessment, say if the military had put together a best assessment, um, they might um, say there's there's strong evidence that I, I do think they they have. Very strong evidence that this is not the technology of an adversary like China or Russia. I mean, some of it may very well be, um, but uh, I think they are confident that some of this is, and I, I even like how they went to UAP rather than UFO, which some people just see that purely as a way to um, confuse the matter and to sort of separate this from uf- ufology historically. But i think it's partly saying this is a phenomena let's mm-hmm. not even call them objects because some of these seem to uh see, seem somehow liminal in nature right that they're mm-hmm. even our, our ideas of what is a solid object what is not what's real versus what's not even that gets complex i think that's acknowledged in that language that's used um i think with high confidence uh i'll give you an eight or nine that they are they 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 know that they're confident that is not human technology some of what's going on mm. um i think that in terms of ultimately understanding the full you're you're likely to get lucky if you get to one <laughs> only because <laughs> right. of what i've just been saying that every sort of tentative answer that gets offered up begets gets five more questions and they ultimately become questions about some of the assumptions we have about reality that we uh unquestionably walk through the world with and so uh, you, it's, it's this crazy thing where you put one sock on and find that someone's just pulled your pants off. You know what I mean? Uh, in other words, you end, up, you end up further behind than when you began. And I think that's part of the intention here even uh, is this subversive way of getting us to question our understanding of reality. And that's why I agree with you, Nathan, that uh, this is going to be incremental steps in disclosure. And each one is a bigger loop than the previous one.
0: Yeah, and uh, I want to say uh, to that end uh, about the disinformation campaign, uh, Strange Arrivals podcast goes deep into the whole thing with uh, interviews with uh, Richard Doty. Is that right, guys? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, Rick Doty and other individuals. There's some other individuals where they actually mask the person's voice, uh, but you could find them on Apple. It's a grim and mild... Uh, is the name of the uh, company that produces this podcast. <laughs> uh, a lot of it goes over the, you know, part of it they go over Rendlesham, and I think we've been over that ad nauseum. But there was a whole nother aspect in season one that was very interesting. Um, the host's name is Toby Ball, but uh, I, I want to say for my part, uh, at least in my time uh, in government and just what I know about how they operate I do believe that there was especially after hearing this and listening to different people there was there's obviously a significant disinformation campaign that used uh, certain principles to muddy the waters etc I believe like EXO does uh, nine that they definitely have a lot more information than they've told us uh, that they may or may they likely have a craft or two and metals and so on and so forth. I believe, uh, I don't know about the whole alien body thing. I'd love to know if you guys think that they collected up that, uh, I, did you guys see what they call him? E.B. The, uh, E.B.E. Yeah. E.B.E. Right. Um, it, it sounds, it sounds plausible. I, I don't know, but I, I know that they know a lot more than they're telling us. I don't believe that, any government contractor would have an entire aircraft if they had one I don't care if it's Bigelow or somebody else that would be in a base that nobody could get to and I think we know a couple of places like that where they would keep those materials Uh, and they can stay there in perpetuity uh, and no one whatever and let me tell you guys something John Greenwall can FOIA till he's blue in the face Um, there's plausible deniability and they will, if they don't want to release that information, they never will it doesn't matter how many FOIA requests or how many senators uh, ask for it, it has to be the right combination of people um, that would release something like that and to whose interest uh, would that serve Uh, it would serve ours (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I don't know, know that it would serve the governments do you guys?
1: Well, I would say a couple of things. One is, um, I also think that there have been, I'll put in quotes, crashes, because th- there's an equal uh, argument to be made that those may be giftings, You know that um, we're, we're on, on surface level, these look like crashes, but what if actually that was an intentionality to make it appear like a crash so that it could ex- actually expose us to different kinds of technology? And in terms of being able to fully reproduce one, and um, you know whether or not we're flying around our own black triangles and whatnot, yeah, I think that there's been part of the lore is that there was a consciousness sort of interface between these ships, right? These craft and the and the occupants, and maybe even the that line is blurred. Again, you have to ask yourself if we if we have spacecraft that are now have traveled beyond our solar system right? And a hundred years ago, we were in horses and buggies. Again, what does a billion years do compared to a hundred? I mean, you literally can't go there. There might be a completely seamless, uh, organic uh, sort of like, um, you know, connection point interface between a consciousness and a craft. And many people who've experienced the UFO phenomenon sense that these things are alive in themselves, the crafts themselves. People see a 30 foot long craft in their front yard get inside and suddenly it's the size of a football stadium. You know, all these notions we have about what reality is telling us, about what's really there gets stretched, distorted, and to some degree, completely taken apart by this phenomenon. So yes, I think there's, there's likely been recovery for sure. And there's been attempts to, uh, to, you know, retro engineer it, but I, I don't doubt that there's all sorts of roadblocks they hit because, because just like if a cell phone were to drop in amongst, amongst the bunks of chimpanzees or even some early primates, they wouldn't know even what it was, let alone how to use it.
0: Or on Francisco Coronado's ship. I mean, so. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with you. Um, I'm sure they've tried to back-engineer it and have been unsuccessful. And that's why I've told people, um, at least what I know about aviation and the amount of time I've spent on it, I don't think that those the 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 stuff that we have video evidence of like the tic tac I don't believe that that is uh, that that's human technology or secret government technology You and I have never discussed it exo, but that's where my background is and and I don't I don't believe it's Human tech just by the way it it doesn't uh, Regard our atmosphere and the laws of flight the way that our aircraft do
1: right? I mean even flight in some ways is the wrong term, right? I mean, it's that's what's so right crazy term. about it's it. Not. It's I mean, a- they don't, they don't, they're not propulsed. Like we tend to think we don't, you know, we use force to push things through the environment. That's clearly not how these things are operating.
0: <laughs> exactly. Right. That's exactly right. You got it, brother. Um, so anyway, as a wrap up, my friend, uh, tell us what you're working on next and where folks can find you so that they can engage with, uh, with you, Excel.
1: Yeah. So, um, they can find me uh the podcast is both a youtube channel which they can find at exo Academian. Um, i have now going to be episode 35 this week um so i do one a week podcasts uh released on the weekend usually saturday nights um and they can find me either on youtube or on their favorite podcast platform whether that's apple Podcasts, google spotify whatever it's on all the podcast platforms um i also have a website pointofconvergence.net. So all one word pointofconvergence.net. And this upcoming week will be part two of my discussion of the Dorothy Isaac case, which was one of my favorites. It's a completely fascinating case.
0: Yeah, I want to hear that. I saw that that uh, came out and I hadn't listened to it yet. But now it's funny that now that uh, you told us uh, uh, your experience with uh with the phenomenon i actually remember hearing that on your program now so i didn't know it was you i thought maybe it was somebody else that you were talking about but uh, yeah but it's great uh nathan anything final for exo
2: i want to say thanks again this has been an awesome chat um i think we could chat for hours uh it's been just a real pleasure to speak with you and uh, I think folks are going to really enjoy listening to this conversation. Just a lot of stuff to explore and, and hopefully we can uh, have a chance to do it again sometime. So thanks. Well,
1: I, I appreciate it guys. And great questions. I, I completely concur that it was a fascinating discussion. I like the direction of the questions, asking some deeper questions, uh, some different questions than you often hear, uh, you know, voiced in these kind of podcasts. So that's great. Uh, found it illuminating and fun and absolutely let's do it again.
0: And so even as far as great questions, even mine, does that mean me too? Absolutely. Yours is yeah. in there too. <laughs> there you go, Nathan. I told you, brother. You did it. <laughs> I did it. All right. All right. Thank you very much, brother. We appreciate it. That is Exo Academia, ladies and gentlemen. We we appreciate it. And I'm gonna play the song called The New Phenomenon to take us out. <laughs> Thanks guys. All right, appreciate thank it. you, brother. Peace out. Bye we'll now. Talk to you, Nathan. Bye bye, brother. Peace. All right. That was EXO, uh, Academia, and Nathan at Away Soul on Twitter. And uh, it was a fascinating conversation, and I hope you guys really enjoy it. Uh, thank you so much. I think I actually will change the name of the podcast. I'm going to consult with Nathan, but I think we're going to change it to um, UFO, MMA, and, and yeah, I think that's going to be the name. But anyway, um, we'll talk to you guys next week. So uh, as I always say, one peace out, one love, and we'll see you down the road.